and try again. Torah Resource presents the Rob and Caleb Show. All aboard! And now, from two sides of the same state, here they are, Rob and Caleb. What up? And shalom. A welcome to the Rob and Caleb Show. My name is Caleb Hag. And with me, as always, uh, the hop. What up? <laughs> what up, Rob? How's it going, brother? The hop is not going to go off. <laughs> How you been, man? Hey, actually, that I can't predict that. I don't know. You never know. Uh, what up and shalom to everybody in the chat room. It looks like we got a good group in there today. And uh, yeah, well, what up and shalom to all of our listeners, whether you're listening to us live right now. On Wednesday morning, or if you are listening to us on demand as a podcast, no matter what, or watching us on YouTube, we are happy you're with us. Um, so I, I think that we should talk right away. I think we should jump right into the show notes. I left Let's a, do it. I left a Let's link in the show notes that I shouldn't have left in there because um, my good friend Adam, who's in the chat room right now, uh, sent me a link this last week, and it had to do with some. Well, i i could only I can only liken it to New Age Messianic Judaism, or or let's rename it New Age Messianic Faith. Um, and I don't want to bash these people like at all. Really, I you know I I, I think that they're off. Um, but they were, Caleb, you want to bash? No, I don't. I I really don't, but they, (laughs) they, uh, they, they are selling, uh, to hell it. And I, I actually listened to, uh, an interview with the lady who makes the to hell it. She's Jewish. She's not messianic. So it's weird how, you know, this is something that I realized this past week. If a messianic believes something way off like weird and off i'm like these people are so off base if a jewish person who's not a believer in yeshua believes it what do you think rob what do you think when when that happens like uh, something kind of out there what do you think it depends you know it could be new age it depends on what the out there direction it is i just the, the first thing i think is oh it's just kabbalah Oh, I see what you mean. They're into like com- if it gets into like numerology and astrology and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, if a messianic believes that, I'm like, oh come on. But if a Jewish person who's not a believer believes it, I'm like, oh, oh yeah, Kabbalah. Right, right. I get it. I get it. <laughs> it's like not a right, right. But I think that because you know the Jewish the Jewish faith believes in the Zohar. A lot of it believes in the Zohar and and the Talmud and the Mishnah as God breathed. So you have kind of these interesting. Uh, beliefs that come from these things, and uh, in in Messianic Judaism or in Messianic faith, I should say, I keep saying Judaism, but I should say Messianic faith. We don't take, we shouldn't take those things as scripture. We should take the apostolic scriptures as scripture, the New Testament. And so, I thought about, uh, should I really, you know, should we really talk about this? Should I bring this website up? And I decided we shouldn't, but I accidentally left the link in the show notes. And that's the everyone in the chat room says that, you know, we've been looking at this link, all this kind of stuff. So I apologize for leaving that in. Disregard. Uh, you can check it out if you want to. I actually, one of the things I, I did this last week with that website, I actually emailed the lady who 
runs that website, and um, we had a little bit, little bit of interaction. It was good interaction, uh, but very interesting views. They believe that the Tehillit that they have on their website is put at 613 terahertz or whatever. I don't know. And I don't know why that would matter and or why that would be beneficial at all. Uh, it, it's, it seems very new age to me. That's it. The frequencies? Yeah. It's all frequencies, man. <laughs> oh, well, you know, yeah. Can't I don't, you, I don't aren't even, you tuning into the vibe? I don't even want to go there because, yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> what vibe is that, Rob? What vibe are you tuning into, dude? <laughs> You know, Shlomo Carlbath. Hey, man. man. Pete Ashbury, uh, man. <laughs> hey, man. Tie-dye keep were, you, were you there in 96 when Jerry died, man? Okay, um, so let's move on then. Let's move on to more important, the weightier matters. Weightier matters. Um, I do have a clip here. Somebody sent this to us. Actually, I got to get to it. So, uh, Rob, entertain our listening audience real quick while I get to this. I actually forgot to uh, cue this up. So let me get to my clips real quick because I actually do have quite a few clips today. We're talking about a very controversial issue today. And uh, that issue, of course, is predestination, also known as Calvinism. And uh, so a lot of people have said that they're going to be listening. Wasn't Calvin like he was a disciple of Paul? <laughs> uh, people are going to believe that you actually think that. I actually, here's a, I have a challenge for people. Okay, now I understand. Before we're going to get into this, but well, who, I, wait a minute, who came first, Calvin or Jesus? Oh, my Do you word. remember, like Rob? What are you doing to us, man? What's the timeline there? Okay, okay, uh, go ahead. Sorry. Um, so I have a challenge for people. People always say that Luther and Calvin were anti Semites. Now I understand the idea that replacement theology is anti-Semitic. I get that. I get that idea, okay? But you can't say that everyone who believes in replacement theology is an anti-Semite. The theology of replacement theology certainly does come from an anti-Semitic perspective. However, not everyone who believes in replacement theology is an anti-Semite. I fully affirm that Luther was an anti-Semite, certainly in his later writings. He wrote the book Against the Jews and Their Lies, okay? I get that. However, when people people always say, oh, Luther and Calvin were anti-Semitic, horribly anti-Semitic. I have read some Calvin, not tons and tons of it. I have yet to find a place where I see Calvin being anti-Semitic. Aside from replacement theology, I haven't found it. Now, I'm not saying it's not out there. Maybe it is. But what I am saying is, if you find a place where Calvin is being anti-Semitic in his writings, or if you can show me how we, Calvin... You know what? We, can we pause for a second and talk course, about the term course. anti-Semitism? Yes, please. Because there's a difference. There was no such thing as anti-Semitism in Luther's day. It, it was what we would call, if we're going to use the same academic type of thing we get anti-Semitic from, it would be miso-Judaic or something. It's like hatred of Jews. Anti-Semitism comes in the late 1800s, 1900s, where you have people who are looking racially. They think that the Semites are an inferior race, according to the Aryans. So it's not, it's not even about what you believe anymore. It's not the, it doesn't matter what your confession is, is that if you're of that race, you are an inferior race to the Aryan race. That's what anti-Semitism 
emerged. So, so Luther had no concept of of like a like there was a Jewish race that was um, inferior to, uh, and he was part of a superior race. There was nothing like that. It was just he he tried to evangelize Jews early on. He got frustrated. He encountered. Texts where Jews were slandering Yeshua. Are you talking? Wait, hang on. Are you talking about Calvin? Or are you talking about Luther right now? Talking about Luther. Okay, keep going. Luther's first book was you. like Jesus the Jew or something. Yeah, I, mean, I, he, I agree. He, with you. And what happened was he learned more and more about certain rabbinic writings that he encountered that were slandering Jesus, basically, and it really made him angry. And he flipped his lid. Well, and, and he, was, he, yeah, he, and he was he was very he was vehemently you know breathing, you know, uh, horrible things coming out of his mouth against. Jews in Germany that were in his, you know, in the communities that he was in. Um, but that's not the same as like anti-Semitism where you have a racial actual hatred of a race. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Hang on just a second. Now, now uh, look, I, we're already getting into Calvinism. That's fine. I understand this is a hot topic. This topic has been going on for a very long time. Before we get to that, I, let me first uh, play you a clip. This was sent to me by, and the person didn't give me a name. I think they assumed I knew their e- email address. I didn't, or their, yeah. Um, so a nameless listener sent this to us. And I apologize for not knowing who this was. Listen to this clip, okay? Now, this is in your show notes as well. This is, uh, it's titled something to the effect of, um, anti-Semitic or uh, uh, Messianic Judaism, a growing deception or something. Okay. This is about nine minutes and 30 seconds into this video. Listen to what this guy says. By making Jews the final authority on spiritual matters, believers are led to reject the same truths Jews have rejected. A prime example is the true Sabbath. Under the heavy Roman persecution following the Council of Nicaea, the Jews set aside the biblical Sabbath when Hillel II reformed the original calendar of Yahweh given to Moses at the time of the Passover in Egypt. Today, Jews keep the seventh day of the Gregorian calendar, Saturday, as if it were Yahweh's true Sabbath day. Hang on just a second, let me... As a result, millions of sincere Christians assume Saturday is the biblical Sabbath for no other reason than it is the day observed by the Jews. <laughs> okay, so uh, first of all, hang on just a sec. I, now, the, the challenge has been met by Robert. Robert uh, gives us a quote. Uh, I haven't. I know oh, we're right. We're going back to. We're, yeah. Be, uh, no. Okay. First, let's. Let, okay. We're all over the place today. I'm sorry. Uh, we'll address that in a second. I see your quote, Robert. And we'll address that in a second. Let's talk about this Sabbath. This Sabbath sound clip that we just listened to. This. So this video is. That, guy's, that is horrible. Yeah. It's a certain. Basically, I, now for if in case you missed it, just in case you missed what he was saying, what he is saying is that Hillel. In the in like three A.D. two A two hundred A.D. three hundred A.D. when he made his his standardized calendar, he switched the Sabbath from Sunday to Saturday to fix to fix the Roman yeah or, so, so, or, so so that they wouldn't be under the Roman calendar so they wouldn't be under Roman oppression. First of all, I see zero evidence of that whatsoever. Show no, me some is, evidence. This is so bad. This I can't even. That, who is this guy? Who's the guy we just listened I, to? I don't know. 
some is, that, narrator. is it like 119 Ministries or something? No, I mean, no, no. It's got the same no, music no. and the same dramatic. No, I, I, think, I think actually it's from Heggy. It might be something from Heggy. I don't know. Anyway, the point is, is that this is total nonsense. <laughs> uh, there's absolutely zero evidence that we see whatsoever of of the Jews trying to change the Sabbath, first of all, before Hillel. Second of all, if if any Jewish person came along, it's just like if Jesus in the in the first century came along and said, you don't have to keep the Sabbath anymore. They tried to, they, you know, they, they thought Paul was a heretic because they thought he was saying, we didn't need to keep Torah. You can see that in Acts 21. So if, if Halal in the third century comes along and says, yeah, we're changing the Sabbath from Sunday to Saturday, they would have killed him. Yeah, this guy is ignorant. He shouldn't be. Now, I don't know. This could be one of those things where, like with 119 Ministries, where the guy reading with the voice on the recording. He's reading a script. Is reading a script. He didn't, like, write it. I, it might be the same with this guy. We, I mean, did someone else write the script and he's... And then they add the music. Yeah. It's just yeah. like... Uh, so whoever... It gives me the creeps. Yeah. Whoever, it gives me the creeps. Whoever sent this to us, I, I, I like, there's absolutely zero evidence whatsoever for this. They haven't given any evidence in the video. They just make this assertion. Uh, total nonsense. A total nonsense. Okay, let's go back right quick to Robert Stiles' quote. He says, quote, uh, and he's quoting someone else there, there, and that is the Jews. He puts in the Jews because uh, it's, I'm assuming it's from earlier context, the Jews. Uh, their rotten and unbending stiff-neckedness deserves that they be oppressed unendingly and without measure or end, and that they die in their misery without the pity of anyone. That's an excerpt from, I'm going to butcher this, Ad... Help me out. You know, you know some Latin, don't you? Quelestiones et objecta juai <laughs> Oh, good one. Okay, so um, he says that that's from by John Calvin, the Jew in Christian theology, Gerhard Falk, uh, McFarland and Company, Incorporated Jefferson's New York City on London, 1931. I haven't seen the quote. Um, I have not seen the full, the full excerpt. I will look into it. And that certainly does sound from the quote that we have right there. It certainly does sound anti-Semitic. So, okay. Uh, fair enough. Thank you, Robert. You have thrown down the gauntlet. Uh, you get the, uh, I don't know. Uh, should we give an award? Let's give an award. Uh, you get the uh, Catholic award. I'm a Catholic, which is the best of all the religions. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why you'd want that anyway. Okay. Um, yes. Okay. Let's jump into Calvinism then. Why? Enough- right, so another difference. See, I would say instead of anti-Semite, I would say, you know, someone who's uh, adopting a, an antagonistic and sometimes that gets into a hateful attitude towards, towards present day Jews based on reading the Bible and seeing and like the fact that I mean John Calvin's saying that they're stiff-necked, mm-hmm. right? They deserve to be. Uh, I mean, that's th- there's prophets that say that, you know. Like, uh, like, look, hang on, Babylon's just going to come wipe you out. But let's not. So, let's so, not. But, but so hang on. Not but let's racial. not. Yeah, but he that's says that. My they, old point. But it's he, not the same as anti-Semitism. He says that they should be oppressed and unendingly, uh, uh, oppressed unendingly and without measure or end, and that they die in their misery. 
Yeah, that and that that's that is so, totally anti Romans eleven. We're go, we're 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 beyond the uh, the dislike of of you know we're we're beyond what the prophets prophets are doing here. <laughs> the unlike of unrighteousness, it seems like he's going a little bit into the uh, you know hatred of Jews area there. Shabbos, Shabbos. Um, okay, let's move to Calvinism then. And the C word. Yes, it's the, the C word. Um, yeah. So, yeah. The, this debate, Calvinism versus Arminianism. Now, I let's give full disclosure here beforehand. And actually, maybe we should read this. Uh, we, we got an email from someone. It was a great email. Uh, and uh, so, should we read the email first and then give full disclosure? Let's read the email first and then we'll give full disclosure. Okay. I've heard you say, this is a quote, uh, this is from Allison. She says, I've heard you say on many occasions that you are Calvinist. (laughs) How does Calvinist, uh, Calvinist theology play out for a messianic? Did you come up with an alternative term to messianic yet? I think she means because I said I don't like the term messianic Judaism. Messianic faith, I think is what I'm using now. To what degree are you Calvinist? That is an excellent question. And and uh, let's stop right here in the middle of this email. I think it needs to be said specifically, okay, that I, I can see you reading the chat room <laughs> because there's, Sorry, go. There's, go. There's, there's some pretty good emoticons going on here. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, so we need to, Rob and I need to be very clear on this. Uh, Rob and I are not Calvinists when it comes to ecclesiology. Rob, stick with me here, man. Stick with me. I'm with you. Okay. So we're not we're not Calvinists when it comes to ecclesiology because the uh, ecclesiology of Calvinism basically does two things. It would say uh, that babies should be baptized, and it would also say that uh, or sprinkled. You could say, and it would also say, "I I love it." Okay, hang on. I got to pause. I'm watching Rob here, and when I told him to con- to concentrate on me, now his thought. face is facing me, but his <laughs> eyes are, are just pointed over this way, and I I can still see his comments coming up in the I'm chat like room. The kid sneaking a cookie. <laughs> I'm sneaking a cookie, man. Say? You weren't looking. Oh, man. Okay. Okay. Seymour <laughs> says there's no emoticon to express how he's feeling right now. Uh, okay. Let's focus on our listeners and not the chat room. Hey, yes. I, I'm representing today. <laughs> you are, yes. Hidden legend. Uh, yeah. Uh, Rob's got a, a, okay, a, a shirt on. Right. Okay. Let's go back to ecclesiology. The biggest, the biggest problem with Calvinistic ecclesiology is that they believe in re, uh, replacement theology. They believe that the church has replaced Israel. Rob, a lot of people. What's a lot that? of people. Yeah, a lot of people do, not just Calvinists. But when we say Calvin, when, when people say Calvinism, if you encompass all Calvinism as uh, all of the Calvin's theology, he was a replacement theology. He was a replacement theologian. Okay, so... We don't agree with Cal. We're, we can't right, say right, exactly. We can't say that we're Calvinists in that respect. What we can say is that I, what I can say is that I'm a five point Calvinist. Uh, well, and, and the context, Caleb, as we've talked about last year in another show, it's a it, when we say Calvinist, it's response to Arminius. It's usually comes. It's like those pair come together, and it has to do with a very specific historical back and forth that happened. That we're 
addressing. We're not talking about everything that Calvin taught we adhere to. That's well, and, and that's we, why I think like Mark Randall said, you know, he he agrees with the five points, but he's like, you know, you don't call me a Calvinist or not, he's not he's not gonna care. It's the point is those five things. Well, and, and we should, you know, I have no problem saying I'm a five-point Calvinist because that implies something specific. But, uh, you know, Mark's right. I should try to stay away from uh, from the term Calvinism as a whole because it does, it, does it does trigger some specific meanings. Let's keep going with this email. Um, being that I grew up in, uh, grew up Methodist, I suppose I'm Arminian in that sense. I believe one can be called by God, but after believing can choose also to fall away. So our friend Allison here is, uh, she, she tells us straight out that you can fall away. Now, th- this is so not... Is that, well, are you on. done with the email yet? No, I'm not, but, uh, but we can stop here. We Let's sh- pause it for a second. I, I, and I think we've talked about this before, and I'm trying to understand... Caleb, imagine, imagine you're talking to your your lovely wife, and you say to her that you love her, but you tell her, but you know what? I could leave you anytime. <laughs> I'm not saying I'm gonna. I'm not saying I'm gonna, but I just want you to know that I I just am reserving the right to leave you anytime I want. I mean, that's what it seems like. Is, is that? What people are saying to God? Well, I, I, the way that I look at it is this, uh, and uh, we should. How first... is that a fruit of the spirit? How is that idea, even the idea? So I'm. So Yeshua says, "Apart from me, you can do nothing. I'm the vine; you are the branches." Okay, so He's telling me, "I'm a branch that I'm going to get pruned, and that it's His life; it's not my life; it's His resurrection life." that I'd bring more, be more fruitful, more joyful. Somewhere in that life, I have this idea. Oh, well, Yeshua, I could, I could leave you anytime. To me, that's an ad- that, that sprig is going to be pruned off. But what fruit is that idea for the, in the life of the believer? Well, we, Paul tells us, okay, now, now we should say that not, not all, everyone who holds to Armenian theology believes that you can fall away. That is not across the board. In fact, it's one of. I forgot about that. You're right. I, I it's forgot. one of. It's one of the. It's one of the uh, main things that that Armenians disagree on. So just because our friend Allison here believes this, does you know? And there's a lot of things that we're going to say today. I hate it when other people try to represent me as a, as a five point Calvinist or try to represent me as even a messianic or a one uh, one Torah th- theology person. Um, because they always seem to get it wrong. So I understand that this is this this show is going to be very frustrating for a lot of our friends out there who hold to Armenian theology. But the idea that you can fall away, we have been given to Yeshua as a gift. That's what the scriptures tell us. The scriptures tell us that we that God has given our souls to the to the Messiah as a gift. And so what? Yeshua is going to leave one of his gifts behind. How is that a gift if that gift can get up and walk away? It doesn't make it, that, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, I forget this scripture. I was going to grab it beforehand. I was, and I, and I completely forgot to, what's the one that says that we are all, uh, uh, given to the, we're all in the father's hand. Yeah. And none shall pluck them out of hand. This is in the none, gospel of yeah, John. None shall pluck them out of my hand. So, 
so how does that work in the idea that you can lose your salvation? The biggest problem for me in losing someone saying that you can lose your salvation is that, first of all, Paul says that we have assurance. Well, how can you be assured if you think that you can lose your salvation? Number two is if you can do something to lose your salvation, that seems like it's that you can do something to gain your salvation. If a work can get you to lose your salvation, then doing the right things can keep your salvation. That's salvation by works. That is not salvation by faith. That's salvation by works. That, that's right. Okay, let's keep going with this. Uh, to, with this. Um, Calvinism, as I understand, uh, believe the, the die is cast. Choice isn't part of it. That's not true. That is not true. Calvinism does not believe that people don't have choice. Calvinism believes that people don't have free will. There is a difference. We'll talk about that in a few seconds, okay? She goes on. Given that we are both not replacement theologians, how is our idea about the organization or selection of the population of saints in the kingdom going to affect how we share our faith or walk out our faith? Is there another... Could you... Read yeah. that one more time. Okay, she that, says... That's a good... That's fair. Th- that's a great question. Given that we are both not replacement theologians, how is our idea about the organization or selection of the population of saints in the kingdom going to affect how we share our faith or walk out our faith? That's So she says two th- She has two sides to the question. How does it affect how we share our faith? That means communicating to others. And how does it affect how we walk out our faith, Right. In other words, let's say Caleb. Let's say I'm I'm I, I choose God. He doesn't choose me. And you're a no. God chooses you. Okay. So you're the Calvinist, and I'm the Arminianist. Let's say what her what I'm hearing her ask is, okay, Rob and Caleb, what what's the difference? How how is Rob going to act differently in the world than you're going to act differently? Are, am I on the same page? What she's, yes. is that? What you hear her? Yes, that's what I hear her saying. Okay. Good question. And on the twist of a word. Everything changes. (laughs) Okay, so let's keep going with the email and then we'll address that, okay? Is there another aspect of Calvinism that leads you to claim being Calvinist other than predestination? Well, yes, the, the five points of Calvinism. Predestination is just one of them. I just don't understand the need to make a distinction or exactly what is the distinction you're making within the Messianic community motivating you to post that particular meme. And I posted a meme, well, that doesn't matter. Could you also address the difference between Arminianism and open theism. Technically, now I'm going to really upset some people with this statement. Technically, I don't really think there is a huge difference. But yes, I can address it. Um, and a, a lot of my friends who are, are hold to an Arminian theology are going to say, no, 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 what are you talking about? No, I'm not an open theist. Open theism is heresy. Well, uh, Christianity back in the 1600s believed that, uh, that Arminian theology was heresy as well. That's not the point. And we'll get to that. Open theism says this. Open theism says that God lives inside of time. Therefore, he does not, he, he does not know what's going to happen. So therefore, we have free will. We have free will to do what we will, and we can change things. Another thing that open theism says is that God, uh, God's prophecies in the Bible might not come true. Since God doesn't know the, the ends and lives inside of time, and he can't, he, he can't see uh, the future, uh, he doesn't know what we're going to choose, and he doesn't know how things are really going to go. He made educated guesses in his prophecies. But 
open theism would say those don't have to come true. And they don't have to come true because since we have free will, uh, we, we're, we're making it up as we go along. They would say God is, is powerful, and, but um, now, now this, the, the, reason, the reason that I liken open theism to Arminian theology is this. We need to define what free will is. True free will would say that I have the ability to change things, that I have the ability to make, to, to make up my own mind, uh, and that it's not encumbered by anything. And maybe uh, one of the things that we could do I think that we should probably do this, is we should read some of the uh, articles of the Arminian faith. Okay, so actually, let's let's do history first. What do you what do you think, Rob? History first. Let's do history. History first. is really good. We need we need to up our literacy of history in the body of Messiah. Absolutely. Let's do history. So we first. don't so we don't uh, do the old anachronistic projection sort of thing. Okay, let's do history first. Which is different then. than astral projection, by the way. <laughs> Back to uh, our 613 frequency uh, thing. For, okay. for, for those who might not know, we've done a show on this before, but we took it, We took all of our uh, first season shows off of YouTube. We did that for m- numerous different reasons. We're going to try to be really nice to our Armenian friends The sensor today. came. Yeah, the sensor I, came. I think they threatened to burn the videos, actually. <laughs> um, here, but actually, I should say this. Rob and I are very much the minority. When I was growing up in the Christian church... Uh, I went to a non-denominational Christian church. They taught Reformed theology. They taught Calvinism. And uh, that's just what I thought everyone believed. I just thought everyone was a Calvinist, except for me. I remember I was in uh, Sunday school. I think I was about 14 or 15 years old. Mr. Posey, my favorite Sunday school teacher, he always did fun stuff with us. And he, uh, he passed out pieces of paper, and he said, okay, I want to know, do you think that we have the ability to choose God? Or do you think that God predestines us? He'd already explained what predestination was to us. Predestines us to believe in him and and whatnot. And I remember that was when my belief in Arminian theology was solidified. I wrote down on that piece of paper, we are not robots. Uh, of course, God gives us the ability to choose. And uh, we, you know, this, what would be the point anyway? of this whole world. If we didn't, you know, if God just chose it all for us. Um, and that is what I believed. And not only is that what I believed, but it, it I got even deeper into that theology. I truly believe that I held to Arminian theology, much to the chagrin of my father, who was a five point Calvinist. I grew up, uh, be- uh debating and fighting my father on Calvinist the on five po- on the five points of Calvinism. I did that until actually somewhat very recently, I would say, until I was about 30 years old. I'm 33, almost 34 now. So almost four years ago, um, I, I came to a different understanding and I switched my theology to five point Calvinism. I did that not because of my father. My father is not who convinced me to be a Calvinist. In fact, I think that if I wouldn't have gone to other places, I would still be fighting my father on Calvinism. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, the people who actually changed my mind from Arminian theology to five, the five points of Calvinism were Dr. James White. He's at Alpha and Omega uh, Ministries. He does many debates, and he's done many debates on Arminian versus Calvinistic theology. But really, the first one who got me started on uh, Calvinistic theology, the five points of Calvinism, 
was a gentleman who I believe is actually still alive. I didn't realize that until just the other day. His name is J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer wrote a wonderful book called Amazing Scholar. Amazing Scholar. I think he's in his 90s now. He uh, is from England, and he wrote a book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. You can, uh, I put that in your show notes for anyone who would like to uh, see the name and uh, remember the author, J.I. Packer. I'm going to read an excerpt from this in a little bit. Um, but J.I. Packer was really the one because he answers the question. Excuse me, I have to cough again. Hang on. He, he basically asks, the, he answers the question. He asks himself the question, which so many people ask. And that question is, if everything is predestined, then why in the world would I evangelize? Why would I go and tell people about the gospel? Why would I tell people about uh, salvation through Jesus Christ if it's all predestined for me anyway? That makes no sense. So I don't have to go and evangelize because it's all predestined anyway, and those people are going to be saved no matter what. J.I. Packer addresses that question in this book. It's a very small little book. I think it's what, 100 some odd, it's 126 pages. It is an excellent read, and it's really what changed my mind from Arminian theology to Calvinistic theology. And then Dr. James White came along and just put the nail in the coffin for it. So don't think that I don't understand the arguments. I get it. I grew up fighting my father tooth and nail on Arminian versus Calvinistic theology. So let's talk now about a little bit of history, okay? And we've, we did this in the in last season in the show that we did on Calvinism. I'm going to go through it again real quick. This is not going to take long, okay? Um, okay. I, I wrote a little blurb here. Uh, when I say Calvin, uh, Calvinist, I use this uh, to refer to being what is known as a five-point Calvinist, blah, blah, blah. The debate, the, uh, debate begins with Pelagius and Augustine in the 5th century A.D., so this is a very old argument, about 1,600 years old. Okay, it did not start with Calvin. A lot of people do not realize that. Uh, Jacob Arminius was born in Holland in 1560. He died in 1609. That's what uh, Jacob Arminius is, the person that Arminian theology is named after. You might also hear it as Wesleyan theology. He was much later. Okay. Wesley was, Wesley was much later. Wesley and, was much later. And Caleb, I need to correct you. It's Jacobus. Arminius. I'm sorry, Jacobus, yes. Jacobus. Jacobus, Arminius. Uh, John Calvin lived before him. John Calvin lived uh, 1509 to 1564. Now, if you remember, I said Arminius uh, was born in 1560. So he was born four years before Calvin died. Okay? Let's get into the history of where this debate really took off. Okay, now keep in mind, this is the 1600s. And so the Reformation is now in full swing, and uh, this this all takes place a year before the King James Version Bible is actually produced. Uh, King James Version Bible is produced in 1611. In 1610, followers, followers of Arminius protested against the Belgian Confession of Faith uh, and the Heidelberg Catechism. This might not seem like a big deal for us today, but this confession and catechism were the official official uh, confessions and therefore the doctrine of the Church of Holland. Remember that uh, uh, the separation of church and state was not something implemented until much later. Okay? So the catechism and all that kind of stuff, it was like the official, like it was like the the Pledge of Allegiance kind of. You did this catechism, you did this uh, confession of faith. That's what the state of Holland believed. Therefore, what the official church believed meant more than just what the preacher was speaking 
about on Sunday. A synod was called to order in 1518. Okay, now this is uh, several years after the King James Version Bible is produced, which is now known as the Synod of Dort or the Synod of Dort. This synod met over a period of seven months in which they had 154 sessions to discuss the five points brought forth by the Arminians. In the end, the five points of Arminius were rejected by the synod and declared heresy. The council did not think it enough to simply reject the five points put forth by the Arminians. They in turn drew up five points to refute the Arminians. These five points were rooted in the Bible, but also leaned heavily on the theology and teaching of John Calvin. Therefore, the, the five responses to the five points of Arminianism, Arminianism are called the five points of Calvinism. Right. Um, and that, why that's so important is because people might think that, like Calvin sat down with a pen yeah. and said, hmm, let's see, I need five things. Right. He didn't. Th- he wasn't even alive. Right. And, and these are a response, not. They, it, the five points of Calvinism are a response to an Arminianist uh, proposition or set of propositions, not the other way around. Exactly. So that's a, that's a main point. When we say f- I'm a five-point Calvinist, Calvin didn't come up with these, uh, with these five points. And we'll talk about what these five points are here in just a few seconds. First, I want to say uh, this. This is from that book that I referenced earlier, which is Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God by J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer says... Uh, he's talking about the difference between Arminianism and Calvinism. This is what he says. The difference between them is not one primarily of emphasis, but of content. One proclaims a God who saves. The other speaks of a God who enables man to save himself. So that's when when a five-point Calvinist hears Arminianism, that's what we're hearing. Why would we think that? Now, I know what's happening. All these Armenian, all these people who hold to Armenian theology out there, I would say that Rob Van Hoff, Tim Hegg, myself, the staff of Torah Resource, and maybe 5% of the Messianic communities out there, 5% of them, hold to reform theology, hold to five points of Calvinism. I would say that 95% of the Messianic communities out there hold to an Armenian theology. We are definitely... We are definitely going against the current here in terms of messianic faith. And I think one of the reasons why is because messianic uh, faith has been born out of uh, the uh, a uh, what? Um, oh, what am I trying to say here? A, you know, speaking in tongues, uh, charismatic, charismatic, thank you, the charismatic Pentecostal background. So, uh, the church of God and whatnot, they have come up and basically built the messianic faith. And that's why you have so many people, uh, who are charismatic within the messianic movement. It is also one of the reasons that you have so many people who hold to Arminian theology is because most charismatics, not all, but most charismatics tend to lean towards an Arminian theology. Okay. Our friend Allison here is not Cal, uh, is not, uh, uh, my word, what, what is wrong with my brain today? Uh, she, she's Methodist. Okay. So she's not Pentecostal. She's not coming out of a Pentecostal background. The Methodists, that was one of the big rubs for the Methodists. And that's why they become, they became Methodists. They had a method to their theology and that method became the Methodist movement. One of those methods was that we have free will, which we're going to talk about here. Okay. Um, so I want to read, I want to read out of, 
this book. This book is a wonderful little book that I also uh, gleaned a lot from. This is called The Five Points of Calvinism, Defined, Defended, Documented. One of the nice things that they do here is they lay out uh, both sides of the Synod of Dort. Okay, So in the Synod of Dort, which we just uh, talked about, we learn that the Arminians put forth five uh, five points, okay, and that and in the end, the Synod of Dort wrote five responses to those five objections. Let me read the first objection from the Arminians. Okay, uh, this is called free will or human ability. Quote: Although human nature was seriously affected by the fall, by, by the fall, man has not been left in a state of total spiritual helplessness. God graciously enables every sinner to repent and believe, but he does so in such a manner as not to interfere with man's freedom. That's an important point right there. He does so in such a manner as not to interfere with man's freedom. Uh, Should I come back to that or should I just talk about it now? What do you think, Rob? Just go for it. Okay. Uh, The problem with that is is that that absolutely cannot be true. I'm a white male. I've used this argument many, many times. People have heard this. Okay. Uh, I'm a male. I live in Washington state. I was raised in the North end of Tacoma. The North end is like one of the nicest areas of Tacoma. It's predominantly white. Um, my, the church, I, I was homeschooled. Okay. So I didn't go to school. The church I went to was, uh, was very Republican, also very white. Okay. Now there's nothing wrong with any of those things. However, the black woman Growing up in uh, South Africa, in a Muslim tribe, I don't know, maybe not South Africa, West Africa, in a Muslim tribe, okay, uh, with, you know, has never seen a white person in her life, was married when she was 12 years old, had schooling in a, in a uh, you know, in a tent until she was seven or eight, but that was enough. And now she cooks and kills, you know, she, she slaughters the goats for her, for her family and cooks that. Is she going to have the same influences in her life that I had growing up? No, of course not. What are the chances? The chances are that she's going to grow up Muslim. She's going to be a Muslim person. She's going to have a totally different worldview. Why is that? It's because God gave her a specific set of parents. God gave me a specific set of parents. My parents raised me a certain way. I'm influenced by my parents. And I can say that one of the tools that God used to bring me to faith was my, was my parents. Though That's one of the biggest influences that he gave to, to make me have the faith that I have. I, I'm not ashamed of that. So just, just being born, God influences our worldview and the way that we think. That is part of our faith. So to say that God does not, uh, he does not interfere with man's freedom. Sure he does. He does all the time. Each sinner possesses a free will. I'm going on here. This is a quote. And his eternal destiny depends on how he uses it. Man's freedom consists of his ability to choose good over evil in spiritual matters. That's not what the scriptures teach us. We're taught that uh, our sin nature, I mean, think about your own life for a few seconds. I would have never chosen God. 
jumping in here anytime. Uh, me neither. I, I mean, that's I, now. You know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know because you know, talking too much, making too much about this. I can see how the gals' emails, like, you know, why did you bring? Why did you have to post this? What are we really going to gain from it? Other people have shared comments that they're like, why is this so important? And one thing that it, if we want, we want to be careful to not forget one thing. It affects how our picture of God. You know what I mean? At a very core level. The person who is sure, is sure of their salvation, approaches their prayer life differently. Yeah. They pray differently. They have a different orientation to the scriptures. And they're te- going to teach the scriptures and expound upon the scriptures in, in a different way than people who don't have that kind of confidence. And when it comes to my own, per- you were sharing about your experience, my experience is the same way. There's, I, I don't understand how someone could say that they chose God. I, I guess, you know, that's a limitation I have. I only know my own experience. Yeah, same here. But boy, I mean, I, I don't get it. And I don't get it how someone could say that they chose God and they, you know, I just, I cannot relate with that. So I, maybe to be fair, I'm biased by my own experience. I I love what uh, Lois says. She uh, she says, he interfered with Paul's freedom to keep on riding a horse. So, so, so if, if if Paul's, Paul's a great example. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, here's the other thing is... And here's, do we have another... Do we have a counterexample? Is there anyone in the scripture where it says, and this person chose God? Oh, we're going to talk about that in a few seconds. Um, the, the other thing that I would say is that when we... when we, uh, It might just seem like this debate doesn't matter. I think this debate matters because what happens is is that you start to give on some of these small things and say, oh, yeah, okay, blah, blah. But then down the road, what happens? You have people who are falling into open theism. The idea that God is not all-knowing, that he lives outside of time, limits God. Not only does it limit God, it diminishes God. That, I think, is a problem. Now, I'm not saying that everyone who believes in in, uh, Arminian theology is an open theist. I don't see how you can take Arminian theology to its full end and not fall into open theism. But I have plenty of friends who do. And I have a good believing friends who, uh, in, this, is, this is an in-house debate. This is not a salvation issue. I don't think that if you hold to Arminian theology, you're going to hell. Uh, but I think that it puts some interesting views of God in our mind. And I think that it's not what the Bible teaches. And so I think that it's important to discuss because we're trying to find the truth in the Bible, right? We're trying to find the truth in his word. Let's keep going with this. Uh, his will is not enslaved to his sinful nature. So right there, I don't see how uh, he can deal with Paul in Romans who says that we were slaves to sin. This is, uh, and I'm saying he, but this is actually the what the Arminians brought to the Council of Dort. His will is not enslaved to his sinful nature. Doesn't Paul specifically say that we were, sin- that we were slaves to sin? To sinner, uh, the sinner has the power to either cooperate with God's spirit and be regenerated or resist God's grace and perish. The lost sinner needs the spirit's assistance, but he does not have to be regenerated by the spirit before he can believe. 
For faith is man's act and pre, uh, precedes the new birth. Faith is the sinner's gift to God. It is man's contribution to salvation. So man has to do something to gain faith, to gain, to gain salvation. That's called works by uh, a works-based salvation, isn't it? Isn't that the definition of a works-based salvation? Yes. See, so yeah, what? I, that's so, how I understand. So it. what I would say, Calvin is in my understanding of the five points of Calvinism. What we are saying is, is that faith is nothing that I do. It's a gift from God. God does it in me. God gives me faith first, and that's what makes me believe. So that's it's all God. I'm doing nothing. Um, let's talk about the Bible for a few seconds. Let's talk about our, uh, you know, I've, I've taken up a lot of time here, uh, Rob, so I don't want to step on your toes. Is, uh, please, is there anything that you want to uh, add to our conversation thus far? Well, I, I would like to see, you know, I think it's just segueing into um, to the next section here, but it has to do with the biblical imagery. Well, how does the Bible talk about it? I can't see example of somebody saying they choose God. Um, that what we do find is is new repentance, which is a gift from God, right? It says, and it's in it's always in the picture of new birth, new creation. You know these things that you can't do by yourself. Resurrection. <laughs> these are the these are the words. This is the vocabulary, the lexicon that we're given by the scriptures to talk about our life in Messiah. New creation. Um, resurrection, born again, born, um, what else? Dead, and yeah, I already said resurrection. That's, that, none of those things are things that we do in, in the natural world. The natural man does not know the things of God. Um, we have somebody. So Robert in the in the uh, chat room says that he that God wills all men to be saved. Okay, I, I know where you're getting that from. I know what what scripture you're talking about. But I think that that doesn't. You can't just take that view. You can't just say, "Oh, that's what it is." You have to take it in re, in uh, in regards to all scripture. So how are you going to put that up against uh, the First Peter passage? He says, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. That's a, an important uh, point to make, Caleb, is that in scriptures where it says that people were going to reject the Messiah and, and crucify him and uh, the stone that the builders rejected. <laughs> so, was the those... prophecy true? Did God predestine? The, uh, it, how could prophecy be true of people rejecting God if God didn't predestine them to do so? But let's go. Let, okay, let, let's let's stop for a few seconds. Let's go to our picture of salvation in the, in the Tanakh. What do we do every year at Passover? We see the story of our salvation and how do we see it we see it in the exodus from egypt right 
And that's what the Passover is really a picture of. It's all a picture of us, of, of the believers being saved, being brought out from slavery under sin, right? Slavery and Egypt represents of uh, sin and, and uh, our, our fallen state. And God brings us out. We're called the chosen people, not the we chose him people. We're not called the Israel is not called the people who chose God. And that whole picture in that whole picture, people couldn't have done the, the, the children of Israel couldn't do it themselves. They did nothing. They did nothing to help that process. God's the one who did everything in that whole process. He, he's the one who directed Moses. He's the one who directed Aaron. He's the one who did all of the plagues. He brought them out with a mighty hand. They had nothing to do with it. Now, I know later on in rabbinical literature, what do we have? We have uh, Israel choose, saying yes to the Torah after God uh, God offers it to the, all the nations of the world first. And everybody says, no, we don't want your Torah. And finally, Israel says, we'll take it. How late is that, though? You don't have you don't have the idea. You don't have Judaism saying that we chose anything that God had to do or had to offer. None of that we don't have until late, like the Talmudic era. After after uh, we have the uh, the debate over uh, this whole thing going on in the in the fifth century, right? Um, who uh, the debate was with Pelagius and Augustine in the in the fifth century. Right. And you don't have the Talmuds coming on to the scene until even after that. Judaism never assumed. Judaism never assumed that uh, we chose God. God always had always chosen his people. And actually, I want to play a clip now. Let's uh, let's break it up with a clip here, folks. Um, uh, I'm going to go to James White. Uh, let me first, I'm sorry. Let me find my clips here because, uh, I'm not exactly sure which one it is. Anything to add while I look for this clip here? Nope. <laughs> uh, oh, one, you know what? I will point out because it was in the chat box, but we never verbally. So the, our listeners maybe who aren't, uh, on the forum, uh, presently or are listening to the recording, um, it came up in the dialogue about Josephus writing about the Essenes and the Pharisees and how, and the Sadducees and how fate was a part of the Essenes. Like everything was fate, Pharisees, some to some things to fate. Um, and that that can be thought of as kind of like a predestination. But, uh, and I think that's a really important point. Um, and one discernment I think that we need to carry with that when we look at that side of things, we look at sources from the first century and before, that we need to recognize that the, the gospel going out is based on what we would call a promise theology that Messiah, you know, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world and the, what his blood purchased is now revealed to mankind, to his, to his saints, to his apostles. And that's the message they're taking out. And that's very different from the notion of fate that jo- Josephus ascribes to the Pharisees or the Essenes. Right? I mean, they're not... We have a very specific... And that's why I like to think about or use the term promise theology. Just because I know it's 
I don't know what people know about that term. I just think it, it is a helpful term because it uses the biblical imagery of God's promise from the beginning as a seed that grows and grows and develops and brings fruit um, according to his will that he saw from the beginning. Uh, we don't see the Pharisees teaching that. We don't see the Essenes teaching that in the first century. So whatever notion of fate they might have had, um, it might have been influenced by Greco-Roman concept of fate, you know, and destiny, like this idea of, and there's an astro astrological aspect to some of that. And we know from the Dead Sea Scrolls, and we know some uh, certain, it's likely that in some Pharisaic circles, there was a sense of when you were born, what's, what month was it, what day was it, what stars were in the sky, etc., had an effect on your personality and said something about your soul. So what we would call today astrology is part of the ancient uh, Jewish conception of fate. Very different from predestination in the apostolic gospel message. Uh, and I want to. I just want to say real quick that uh, Robert says, I guess I would see predestined as foreknown or foreknew in regards to First Peter. Have to review that one. Second Peter three nine. The all here is, and then okay, but but I know the passage Second Peter three nine. Who is the all in that passage? It's a personal pronoun. He's talking about the elect. It, it, read the Greek. He's talking about the elect. He's not talking about the all as in the whole world. Yeah, what does, what does elect mean? Yeah. And not only that, but uh, in terms of foreknown, okay, well, let me ask this. Let me, for, for everyone who's, uh, who's wondering, uh, who out, uh, I know this argument. Oh, God see, lives outside of time, so he sees that I, what I'm going to choose. So then do I have the choice to change that, that choice? If he sees what I'm going to choose, and I'm going to choose yes, then do I have to choose yes? Is that free will? That's like, that's weird, yeah. You can't say that it's free will if I don't have the, the ability to change it. That's not free will. That's predestined. Um, let's listen to this clip. Now, I, I want to say that uh, in this, uh, Dr. James White is debating Dr. Michael Brown. I'm friends with uh, Dr. Brown. Um, <laughs> Dr. White, White won't return my emails. <laughs> Uh, but I actually agree with Dr. White on more things than I would say I agree with Dr. Brown on. Anyway, so Dr. Brown has now, uh, in this debate, he's used the sacrificial system as a uh, uh, as saying that that the model was for uh, for anyone. So any one of Israel who wanted to come, uh, salvation was offered to them. Okay, and uh, now Dr. White is going to uh, just nail. I think he hits nail on the head on this one. I would like to suggest, and I would like to prove from the text of Scripture, that Jesus' death upon the cross was a covenantal death. God deals with his people in the form of covenants. Amen. And the new covenant was established in the blood of Jesus Christ. It was a new covenant death. And I would like to establish the fact that that has a specific audience and a specific perfecting effect for those for whom it is made. Specifically, Jesus Christ died in behalf of his elect people, and that in so doing, he procured eternal redemption in their place. And I'd like to just look at one particular text of Scripture, sort of as a focus, uh, that we can look at all the universal texts and specific texts in light of just this one text. Uh, Roman, uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15 says, For this reason he is the mediator 
of a new covenant. There's the new covenant language. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called, very key uh, text there, very key word, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. There is a specific purpose in Jesus' death, and that is so that those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. There the intention of what Jesus was doing upon the cross is revealed to us. And so the two perspectives, and I'll let uh, Dr. Brown define his own uh, position, but generally in this, in this dialogue and discussion, the two perspectives are that Christ's death in harmony with the decree of God and the election of a specific people was specifically intended in its salvific effect. We're not talking about other effects in regards to the governance of the universe or something like that. But its specific salvific intent was to save a particular people and to provide absolute redemption for them. And that it actually accomplishes that and that Jesus as our high priest then has initiated the new covenant and as our high priest, he then goes into the presence of the Father and intercedes for the exact same people for whom he has died. Now, I haven't—that was the wrong clip, but that's still, uh, that's still nail on the, on the head. Um, he's absolutely right. So I, I, I don't even know what else to say. I think he hit the nail on the head. Um, I do want to say this. Let's move back to a second, for a second because I, I said earlier that we have will. We don't have free will. Now, I talked already about what it means uh, to be born to specific parents. That's, that's a choice that God, that God makes, not us. We don't choose our parents. So our will is already encroached upon. Um, I believe we have will. And I, li- I liken it to this. My father, uh, I have to give credit to my father for this one because he gave me this analogy uh, down at the ETS meeting last, this last year. We were in San Diego and he gave me this analogy. It's an excellent analogy in my mind. Um, he said, th- I said, so are you saying we don't have will? He said, no, of course we have will. We don't have free will. Think of it like this. There's a man in the desert. He's been in the desert for two days. He's had no water and he's walking along. He's about to die because of thirst. He, you know, he can hardly blink his eyes anymore and he's, he's dying. And all of a sudden there's a pool in front of him. And God says to him, God's standing there and says, go ahead, you can drink. Here's a cup. Is the man going to drink the water? The answer is yes. Of course he's going to drink the water. Does he have a choice not to? Well, kind of, yeah. He, he, he has that choice not to drink that water. But that the offer to drink that water is so strong and so tempting. So God has reeled him in with a beautiful, crystal clear pool of water. Of course, no person who's dying of thirst in the desert and hasn't had a drink for two days is going to say no to that. And that's exactly how our salvation is. The Holy Spirit calls us to salvation. He puts it in us. So the goodness of God leads you to repentance. Absolutely. We are slaves to sin before we come to the Messiah. Sin has enslaved us, just like Egypt enslaved Israel. There was nothing Israel could have done. Israel couldn't have have, uh, gotten out from under the bondage of Egypt by themselves. God came in. God gave them the ability to, to leave that slavery. Paul tells us that we're slaves to sin. 
When I, I, I remember specifically when I was a sinner, I did not want to come to God. I wanted to stay, stay doing exactly what I had done. I wanted to continue in my ways. My mind was made up. I did not want to come to God. I was rebellious. And you know what? God changed that. God's the one who changed that. Should we listen to another clip? Let's listen yeah, to let's another. do that. Let's listen to another clip. Um, let's go to number four. This, hang on just a sec. Sorry. We're going to, I pulled a bunch of uh, clips from Dr. White because I like Dr. White because he's one of the ones who helped convince me of this theology. This is another long clip where uh, this is a two minute long, two minute and 20 second long clip. So bear with us here. But I think this is the one where he talks about uh, Brown's assertion that the sacrifices show a free will mentality. And if Jesus has substitutionary tone for every sin of every person, then the only option is universalism. That's the only consistent way that you can follow this through uh, exactly because right. of the nature of the work that. Okay. Yeah. Let's, let's go back. That, I mean, that point right there. Can you just play that that first part again? Absolutely. He's right. I mean, I... Go for it, Rob. No, I, I, <laughs> you, I think that there's... That's just one of the basic ideas that needs to be put on the table. It's like, that's what the alternative is, from my view. I, I it, What he says is resonating very clearly with my line of thought. Yeah, exactly. Can you play, play, that, play that clip again? That first and part. if Jesus has substitutionary tone for the, every sin of every person, then the only option is universalism. That's the only consistent way that you can follow this through uh, because of the nature of the work that Jesus did. Hang on. Okay, wait. Hang on. This is, oh, thank you, Robert, in the chat room for proving my point. He has proven my point. He said, I did not have a choice when I was born or to whom I was born. In my understanding, my parents made a choice. I was a consequence of that choice, an intended consequence, thankfully. But my parents were not saved. God found me. I still had to to suffer, quote unquote, uh, the consequences of my parents. But God changed me and allowed me to raise my kids differently. But they will still eventually choose to follow God, God willing. First of all, he says that God changed him. God changed him. So you didn't change yourself, right, Robert? And second of all, you say, but my, but my children will uh, choose to follow him. God willing. What do you mean? If, if we have free will, then why would it matter if God willed? God wouldn't encroach his will upon your children, would he? That wouldn't be free will. That would be not free will. I mean, I totally agree with you. I, I totally agree with you. God willing, your children will grow up to to uh to follow uh god but if it's god willing that means that god's going to encroach his own personal will upon your children that is not free will that's god's will let's keep going with this quote quote from uh from white i'm sorry i'm not trying to i should say i'm not trying to pick on you robert uh, but I think, and I feel bad for Robert because I feel like he's probably one of the only guys in the chat room right now. We got 14. Oh, yeah, people. Robert, we're glad you're here. Well, yeah, yeah, we got 14 I, people in the chat room, and I think Robert's the only one who's trying to stick up for Arminian theology. So uh, I'm happy. Well, he's just engaged in the yeah, conversation. he's engaged awesome. in the conversation, and, and I'm, I'm not trying to pick on you. Uh, I, I actually wish there were a couple more people in, in the chat room that were uh, fighting back. Okay, uh, oops, what did I do? Here we go. Let's keep going with this white clip. 
there's two different views of atonement being, being presented before you. Michael, for example, said, well, the atonement made in the Old Testament was for the whole nation. No, it wasn't. It was for those who drew near. And this is brought out specifically when you look, for example, at the discussion in Hebrews chapter 7. In Hebrews chapter 7, the permanent priesthood of Jesus is in view. And in verse 25, we read, Therefore he is able also to save to the uttermost, or forever, those who draw near to God through him. That's referring to the same group that we see in the Old Testament who drew near at the time of the offering of, of the atonement. Same people. If you did not draw near to God, if you, were, if you were even a part of Israel, that atonement was not for you if you did not draw near to God. But those who draw near to God through Him, why? Why is, able, why is Jesus able to save to the uttermost? What is, what is it that gives him that capacity? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. And this is what I mentioned right at the end of my opening statement. The high priest who offered the atonement then took the blood of the atonement and entered into the holy place and sprinkled that blood upon the mercy seat. And so that is part of the same work. And so one of the most important things to remember is that Jesus as our high priest is both the offerer and the offering. And what's important to ask ourselves the question is, who is Jesus interceding for this evening? Is he interceding for the people who are already under the wrath of God? If he died for them, he would have to be interceding for them. You have to divide the work of <laughs> yeah. the priest and say, no, you can have this over here and this separately. You Wait, hang on. That was a great, that's a great little bit right there. If he died for them, he has to be interceding for them. To come up with some totally unheard of function of the priest where he no longer as the high priest intercedes for those for whom he dies. What is the effect of the atonement? The effect of the atonement, according to Hebrews chapter 10, is the perfection of those for whom it is made. Let's How we pause those? right there. Yeah, of course. He's done. Let's, let's take what, what Dr. White is painting there and take it right back to Saul of Tarsus. So after Yeshua suffers, dies, is buried rises again, ascends to, spends 40 days and nights during the counting of the Omer for six weeks or whatever of the counting of the Omer, teaching his disciples about things pertaining to the kingdom. He ascends, and right now where we're recording this, we're in that final week where Yeshua had, where the apostles are waiting, right? Because we're counting that last week where Yeshua had ascended, but we had, it's not yet Shavuot. So we're in this time of anticipation of what's going to happen. Um, that, and then Yeshua ascends and is interceding, right? Okay. Post all that, we have Saul of Tarsus, zealous Pharisee, for the, zealous for the traditions of fathers, probably wanting to oust Rome however he can and get a Maccabean king back in, Maccabean priesthood and kingship back in place. I mean, that's what he's all about. Delivering believers over to death, Yeshua was interceding for Saul of Tarsus during that time. Yeah. Not only that, Yeshua talked to him. <laughs> Knocked him over the side of the head a little bit. Right? Yeah. It's just like Peter. Well, Yeshua said before us, he says that, you know, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you. And that, you know, we learned from the, that high priestly prayer given in John. 
that Yeshua, even before his suffering, is praying and praying and praying. And that's a mystery. We, we, we don't know exactly what it's like to be in Yeshua's shoes. We can imagine it. We've, got, we've been blessed with the scriptures preserved for us. It spells it out for us. But it's still, sometimes our, our, we're dull to hear. You know, it's hard, it's hard to, to really grasp the love of Messiah and what he suffered and what his aim is and who his person is, what, what he embodies, that he is yod heh vav in the flesh, that he is um, the Alpha and the Omega, as it says in Revelation, the first and the last, who was dead yet who lives forevermore. It's a mystery. Our brain can't get, our, get around that. But to talk back to Dr. White's point, that if there's someone now that we would say, oh, they're broken off, Paul tells us in Romans 11, you don't boast against the branches. You don't know. God can graft them back in again. It's not your place to judge somebody else whether they're in or out, whether they're elect or not. That's not, what, that's not why we're given the term elect, so that we can go around and stamp people on the forehead, elect or not. No, that's what Paul's arguing about. And Paul uses himself as an example. If that was the case, I would have been dismissed a long time ago for everything I've done against the body of Messiah. And that's, I think, our point. Our point, Caleb, when we talk about our own experience, is that is one of like, you know, <laughs> this is something that God works in and through us, and we can't explain it. Just because we consider ourselves elect doesn't mean we are the elect police. Rather, our, just like Paul, his heart longs for the salvation of Israel. That's a burden that's on his heart. It's because he knows that they need Messiah Yeshua to have true life. And some of them will, will come to, to faith. And then those some are called the elect. But it's not us, it's not we who decide who is elect and who is not. Uh, Lois brings up a good point, and this is a point that I that I I like. Uh, but we'll talk about this a little bit more. So the one of the questions is is why, why would you evangelize if everyone's predestined? Well, I would ask the question: Why would you evangelize if no one's predestined? If you believe in free will, then why are you encroaching on someone's free will to choose? Um, the answer to the question: Why would you evangelize if there is predestination? Is because God uses different means to save people, to bring people to himself. He uses people. He uses tools. He uses parents. He uses uh, strangers. He uses the words of, of uh, you know, preachers and whatnot. So we, when we give our lives to the Messiah, or when the, when the Lord gives us faith, and we then give our lives to the Messiah, out of will, not free will, but out of will, um, then we become slaves not of sin, we're brought out from the slavery of sin. We're brought into the slavery of righteousness, of the Messiah, of God. And so we are the servants and the slaves of the Messiah now. We are not free. And God can use us however he wills. He says, you are not your own. Yeah. You were purchased with a price. Okay, if that's true, if I was purchased, then that means I didn't sell myself to Messiah. I didn't. I, I wasn't involved in the, <laughs> the negotiation. I was purchased. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, uh, well, actually, let's play a couple of clips here. I got two more clips. This one is from, we'll play one from uh, Dr. Brown. 
uh, and our and he holds the Armenian theology. Here we go. How do you answer those? I'm preempting you, but it's oh well, I I, I answer them within the, the larger context of, of Scripture. Now now actually, if we were just debating that and exegeting Ephesians one and Romans nine. I think James has more scriptural ammunition for that that I have good responses to. Uh, I see such an abundant witness to Jesus dying for every human being that, that I see no exegetical way out of that. Uh, when, I, when I look at Romans 9, for example, I don't look at that in terms of predestining of salvation of individuals, but rather corporate election and God's purposes for Israel. It's, it's, it's predestination to service and then predestining a, a people in Jesus. Wait, hang on just a sec. Uh, so the clip's not done, but I just want to say this. So <clears throat> Dr. Brown has now taken a traditional view of, uh, of Jewish theology towards salvation within the Tanakh, and now he's pl- placed it on Romans, Romans 9. <laughs> that Romans 9 isn't talking about individual salvation. It's talking about salvation as a whole for the nation of Israel. I find that very interesting. Anyway, well, let's keep going. Uh, so that we all agree there's predestining taking place. The question is, how does it work and in, in what manner? I do not see anywhere in Scripture where God predestines an individual to hell. I would totally disagree with that. I think that uh, Proverbs uh, 6, 4, uh, you know, the wicked were made for the day of the Lord. What does that mean if they're not, uh, you know, what about Judas? I was thinking about Judas, too. I was like... Um you know what, and what about? And we already referenced the First Peter two eight. I know that uh, I know that uh, our friend and and other people that I've talked to uh, discount that because they, yeah, you know they they try to work around that. But I think that when you take all the witnesses, especially Judas, you know the scripture basically says that he was destined to to do what he did. He was chosen to do what he did. Let's listen to this. I, this is uh, going to be the last clip that I have for the day. But this is Dr. White again. Um, the biggest, the biggest uh, objection to the five points of Calvinism, the biggest objection to the idea that God predestines people, and the biggest objection to the whole uh, sovereignty of God argument is that God would not predestine people to burn in hell. I saw a, uh, I saw a video the other day while I was trying to prepare for this. These two pastors, and it was actually uh, the the title of the video is pretty funny. Some a, a Calvinist actually posted the video because he thought that these guys did such a horrible job representing Calvinism or uh, Arminianism that it actually supported Calvinism. Um, so these two pastors start their their lecture on why Calvinism is f- from Satan, uh, and what did they do? They started by saying uh, by by showing a bunch of pictures to their audience of babies, some of the cutest babies possible. And then uh, the pastor stops and he says, uh, the, doctor, the doctrine from Satan that we are talking about tonight, that we're objecti- objecting to tonight, is it says that God created some of these babies to burn in hell. And you hear, hear this lady in the audience go, oh, <laughs> I just thought, oh, man, the presentation is, is just priceless. Listen to what jo- Dr. Uh, James White has to say about uh, such an idea uh, of, you know, people saying, I can't believe a, a God would do that. It is specifically said that God desires to demonstrate his holiness and justice and power. It's right there in the pages of Scripture. How fair and just is it? It is absolutely fair and just that God would judge any fallen son or daughter of Adam. What is not fair or just is that he, in the person of the second person of the Trinity, his son, 
would give his life so as to redeem a particular undeserving people. And they're not just undeserving. They are deserving of his wrath. Hit the nail right on the head. To say that we somehow deserve God's pity or somehow deserve something from God is to say that we're not fallen. It's to say that we somehow have righteousness in us naturally. And not only righteousness, but to enter the presence of the Most High God fully, that we are fully righteous. Right, exactly. The point is, here's another way to look at it. The miracle is that there's life. The miracle, the, the thing that blows me away is that God has, he sus- continues to sustain the world in spite of our sin. I mean, why does he continue? Why does he let man live? Why do we continue? Why does the world continue where people live? We're not entitled to anything. He doesn't owe anybody anything because the very life we have, even for the unbeliever who's living a life, is based on his grace. That's right. If it's him withholding judgment is why the world continues. That's, it's not that we're all entitled and we're all walking around and we all have the ability to choose whatever we want in this world. That, that, that's not a picture that shows God as the sovereign creator by whose grace the world endures and that life continues. It's, the miracle is that he hasn't wiped us away completely. Uh, the, the other thing I would like to say, I, when we're talking about children, I know this is a very touchy subject, especially for people who have lost children. My wife and I have lost a child um, that had not uh, come to a full-term pregnancy. Uh, I know that uh, you know people lose children at a very young age, and it's extremely devastating. I can't imagine. Um, you know, God, our, our, the Scripture tells us that, uh, what, was it John the Baptist? You know, uh, who was it that God knew in the womb? So that, well, it, and Jeremiah, and I think in Isaiah, there's a hint so, of that. So we can't say that just because a chi- uh, yeah, just because a child uh, is not uh, does not come to a full term, or because a child uh, dies at a young age, that they're not saved. We can't say that. Oh, you know, John the Baptist leapt in, in yeah. Elizabeth's womb when he heard when yeah yeah. So we can't say that we can't say that a child who uh, d- doesn't ha- can't speak words yet isn't saved and doesn't have a relationship with the Lord. It's up to the Lord, not and that's that's the problem with free will. If you say that that the child has to choose God first, then every child who is under uh, the age of of being able to understand would go to hell. At least with free will, at least with uh, with uh, the five points of Calvinism, with the sovereignty of God, He's sovereign to choose His elect. Okay, well, I have uh, one last thing that I want to read, uh, but uh, besides that, I mean, I know that I can tell that there are going to be some very frustrated people out there. I know that Rob and I are in in the minority, the strong minority, uh, when it comes to uh, this view. And so don't, uh, you know, 
we're not putting people down if you hold to an Arminian theology. You know, I think that's, I, I don't think that that's exactly what the scripture teaches. But once again, this is an in-house debate. This is not a debate of salvation issues in terms of you're not saved if you hold to Arminian theology. I've met people who say that, and that's not what I'm saying at all. Uh, most of my friends, most of my brothers and sisters in the Lord that I that I interact with on a daily basis hold to an Arminian theology. There are people in my congregation that hold to an Arminian theology, even though my dad is a strong five-point Calvinist. Um, the last thing I want to read is actually from this book that I referenced at the very beginning of the show. It's called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God by J.I. Packer. This book was very influential in my walk and my uh, coming to understand uh, I, the five points of Calvinism. And believing it, I'm going to read the first page. This is how he. Uh, this is how J. I. Packer opens his book. I do not intend to spend any time at all proving to you the general truth that God is sovereign in His world. There is no need, for I know that if you are a Christian, you believe this already. How do I know that? Because I know that if you are a Christian, you pray, and the recognition of God's sovereignty is the basis of your prayers. In prayer, you ask for things and give thanks for things. Why? Because you recognize that God is the author and source of all the good that you have had already and all the good that you hope for in the future. This is the fundamental philosophy of Christian prayer. The prayer of a Christian is not an attempt to force God's hand, but a humble acknowledgement of helplessness and dependence. When we are on our knees, we know that it is not we who control the world, It is not in our power, therefore, to supply our needs by our own independent efforts. Every good thing that we desire for ourselves and for others must be sought from God and will will come, if it comes at all, as a gift from his hands. If this is true, even our daily bread, and the Lord's Prayer teaches us that it is, much more, uh, if it is true for our daily bread, much more is it true of spiritual benefits. This is all luminously clear to us when we are actually praying. Whatever we may be betrayed into saying in argument afterwards, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, this is all luminously clear to us when we are actually praying, whatever we may be betrayed into saying in arguments afterwards. In effect, therefore, what we do every time we pray is to confess our own impotence, Impotence. Impotence, thank you, and God's sovereignty. The very fact that a Christian prays is thus proof positive that he believes in the lordship of his God. I got nothing else, else to say. J.I. Packer, there it is. Yeah, that's well put. The, the basically, I mean, his initial point there is if you pray, if, you're, if you pray, if, you're, if you believe in Yeshua and you're praying, then... Why would you pray unless you, the, the foundation of that is that God has the power to hear and answer. Yeah, exactly. And if, and if you have friends or family members who are not saved then, and you believe in free will, then certainly you should not pray for them to be saved because that would mean that God would enact his will on someone with free will. That would not be free will. That would be the sovereignty of God. So, uh, yeah. I think that that's, uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, let me uh, move to my, <laughs> I don't even have my final music queued up here. This shows how uh, how in-depth I, I, I was, in, in, into the conversation I was. Hey, thanks everybody for uh, being with us in the chat room. Uh, it looked like we had some a lot of good conversation. 
going on there. Anything to add before we... Uh, no, this has been a great show, and I want to say thank you, like to, especially to Robert and the others who've been really engaged, and they're not uh, feeling bullied. I, I, that's not we we definitely want to protect uh, against attitudes of one person bullying another person, but rather we're all we're believers, we're all brothers. We can and sisters, right? We got sisters in their house. Um, go back and forth, have this discussion in a mature, loving way. And but yet we can still have the iron sharpening iron aspect, and I think that's awesome. I think Yeshua is glorified in that. I think my hope is that it would be pleasing to Him as we uh, work this stuff out. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, obviously, we realize that this uh, debate is is going to continue on, and uh, I don't think that we've changed a whole bunch of minds. <laughs> Maybe we have. Who knows? My mind was changed several years ago. Uh, so I'm not saying it can't happen, but, uh, yeah, I, I hope that, uh, we've shed some light on something. Uh, I, the one thing I do want to say is remember that we're not saying you don't have will. We're saying you don't have free will. There's a difference there. Um, yeah. Anyway, join us next week. I don't know what we're going to be talking about. Um, but I hope it's going to be something good. (laughs) Uh, join us in the chat room next week as well. Email us. Uh, Seahag at TorahResource.com And whatever we do, we're trying to glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua, the Messiah. Mm-hmm.